Good morning. My name is Chris, one of the pastors here, and uh, it's been fun to already worship with you guys, to see that you're excited to come here, hear the Word of God, and worship Jesus Christ. I agree with Gavin, it is negative a thousand out, but uh, my heart is stirred with an affection for Christ. I'm excited to get into his word. Now, we have been walking through the book of Luke, and uh, today we're going to continue to do that. We're going to be in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, so open up your Bibles to that place today. Now, um, let me start with this uh, real quick observation. Our culture kind of celebrates the strong, the rich, the wealthy, the pretty, the influencers, the talented, um, this week, I looked up LeBron James' Twitter following uh, just because I wanted to do that, and he had 26 million people. Now, me and LeBron have a lot in common. I'm athletic and play basketball. He's athletic and he plays basketball. I have like 17 followers on Twitter. So what's the difference? Well, LeBron's famous. He's a little bit bigger of a deal, and so he's got a lot more people following him on Twitter than I do, and um, that's just a picture of kind of the world that we live in. It, it celebrates and champions the talented and the who's who and the influencers, and if you're not, you just realize what that means. And so um, as we journey through the book of Luke, one of the things that we're going to see is that Jesus is going to show up and he's going to reverse the value system. In the book of Luke, we're going to see that Jesus is, is going to champion the humble and show honor to the humble. And he's not going to value swagger and strength like our world does. Jesus comes and he celebrates the faith of the poor and he pushes up against the, the love of money. He champions the childlike faith of the very simple. He moves towards the social outcast while pushing away from the social influencers. What Jesus is doing in the book of Luke is saying that the kingdom of God just looks different than this world. The world is going to celebrate things, champion things, and push things that, that Jesus and the kingdom of God don't value. The economy of the kingdom of God just doesn't make sense to the watching world. Today we're going to see this reversal of values begin to play out as Jesus is going to have a conversation with some religious leaders, some Pharisees, and and they're in the midst of celebrating their morality and their goodness and their right biblical theology and their awesomeness. And he's not going to celebrate them. He's not going to champion them. Instead, what he's going to do is he's going to find a notorious sinner who has a humble heart posture towards God. And he's going to say, that's what the kingdom of God looks like. And so he's like, here's why this matters for us. I think all of us in this room generally want to be good people. Um, we want to have good marriages, raise good kids. We want to be good employees and good students. But what Jesus does in this text is he shows up and um, he's, he, he just gives us a very strong warning that says, we've got to be careful because what, what can keep us from understanding our desperate need for God is not our badness, but actually our goodness. There's something about our perceived goodness our spiritual strength, our morality, the way that we serve, the way that we give, the way that we care about others, the way that we go to church, the way that we plant churches, the way that we take steps of faith, there's something about that that, that so seduces our focus into looking at us and pulls our attention away from Christ. And so what Jesus does this morning is he just warns us. He says, don't get distracted with that. Focus on Christ. So this morning, we're going to walk through this parable and look at how Jesus both comforts us through some incredibly good news and both also challenges us and pushes into us. So um, let's get into it. Luke, Luke 18, verse 9. Uh, the first thing that Jesus is going to show us is the audience that he's, he needs to address, and then he's going to talk to us about why the story and the parable was needed. So in verse 9, we discover that Jesus is, is talking to a group of people who knew their Bibles, who gave regularly, who externally kind of look like the kind of people you want your kids to grow up as. 
I mean, I mean, there's this group of religious leaders who knew their Bibles, who were pure, who fasted, who tithed. And like, you look at these guys' lives and, and externally they look kind of awesome. They look like good church members. They look like the kind of people you want to move in next door. There's not a whole lot lacking. These were good people. And yet Jesus doesn't look at these guys and go, yay, I'm so proud of you. Keep up the good work. Instead, he starts to confront the spiritual pride in their hearts. And he says, because there's some spiritual pride, there's some self-righteousness, there's an ego in here, he's going to need to tell a parable to speak into those things. So in verse 10, he starts the parable off. And the first thing we see in the parable is the characters. And so we see uh, first the Pharisee, and next we see the tax collector. And this is a crazy start to the story, okay? This is like me saying, picture Mother Teresa and your crazy uncle, Rusty, hanging out and going church together. You know Rusty. You know that crazy uncle, the one who loves women, and he loves his bourbon. Okay, that Uncle Rusty, the Rusty that's a little crazy, the, uh, the Rusty that's a little out there, that's a little rebellious. Picture those two hanging out together, going to church, and praying in the same place. You're like, no, 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 those two things don't go together. And that's how the people of God would have heard this 2,000 years ago. A tax collector and a Pharisee praying in the same temple. No, 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 those two things don't belong. Because the tax collector and the Pharisee were in totally different places morally. They were seen differently socially. The tax collector was um, kind of known as the greedy, um, no integrity, dishonorable, compromising person. The tax collectors were despised by their own people because they were working for the um, Romans. And so at this time, the Jewish people were kind of being ruled over by the Romans. The Romans would empower a local person to collect taxes. And so if you were a tax collector, you were basically taxing your um, own people, your own community. And it was really seen as, you were seen as a sellout. You were seen as a traitor. You were seen as somebody who was working for the enemy. And these tax collectors were notorious for their wild living, for being okay um, just to overtax the people in their own community so that they could profit and line their, line their pockets with more, that was the tax collector. And then you got the Pharisee. The Pharisees were like really serious about God. They like memorized the first five books of the Bible. They prayed regularly at the temple every day. They fasted regularly. They tithed regularly. These guys were very serious about God. And so you've got one guy who's known for his goodness and you've got another guy known for his badness. You got one guy who's known for his hyper-religiosity, and you got another man known for his rebellion. These two men don't seem to fit in the same sentence, but they're both going to go to the temple. They're both going to pray, and it says that only one of them is going to be justified. Only one of them is going to get eternal life. Only one of them is going to get championed by God and said, this is the heart that is glorifying to me. So this means that um, we need to look at this parable and start to just ask questions. Okay, what is it about What is it about these men that we need to learn that God wants to warn us, God wants to champion, and God wants to celebrate? So I want to look at a few things um, as we compare and contrast these two guys. I want to look at how they viewed themselves. I want to look at how they viewed others. And I want to look at how they viewed God. So this morning, my three points um, are not going to be statements. They're going to be more questions. Um, And the reason I've done that is because I think the word of God today wants to rest on us. It wants to um, confront us. It wants to challenge us. And so um, instead of just making blanket statements, I'm, I believe that the word of God is living and active this morning. He wants to speak to some of us in this very room. And so um, instead, I've, I've kind of put my points as questions. I want us to actually evaluate our hearts and say, okay, how, how are we handling this reality? So the first question I ask is, um, how do you see yourself? 
how do you see yourself? City Light, how do you see yourself before God? The tax collector and the Pharisee had two very radically different view, versions and views of themselves. And we start to see how these two men viewed themselves differently in the light of God as they begin to pray. Praying helps us, um, as we evaluate their prayers, we realize that they had two different views of themselves. So let's look at how first the Pharisee prayed. Look with me at verse 11 and 12, chapter 18. Look at these, look at these two verses. It says, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. How many of you guys prayed like that this week? Awesome. Pharisee is saying, listen, I'm the good guy. Let me tell you all about my spiritual resume. Let me tell you about why I'm awesome. The first thing that he does is he points out about all the things that he hasn't done, all the things that he's refrained from doing. He said, I'm not like the guy who drinks too much. I'm not like the guy who looks at that website. I'm not like the guy who cheats on his taxes or cheats on his wife. I'm not like that guy. I don't do the things that bad people do. He said, I don't do the things that don't honor God. That's where he's deriving his goodness is not in Christ, but by saying, this is the stuff that I don't do. And then in verse 12, he transitions. He says, I'm not just going to define my morality and my righteousness based on the things that I'm not doing. I'm going to base it around the righteous behaviors that I am doing. And so he says, I fast twice a week. I tithe all that I get, which um, just to take you into some insights here, um, the the Pharisees were required by the law of God to to fast once a year. So this dude is an overachiever. He's going for it. Twice a week, no food. Okay, bro, you are an overachiever. You are going for it. He says, I tithe on everything. So he's not just tithing on the income that he gets. Like he's, he's tithing on the birthday card that he got. He's putting a dollar in the basket for the 10 that he got from his mom. I mean, he's going that far. And can I just say, when I looked at what this guy's external life looked like, I'm like, I kind of hope my son is kind of in some ways like that. Don't we want to be more like that? To say, I want to refrain from food because I hunger for God? To say, God, you're the Lord of my wallet. I'm going to be a good steward. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to take you very seriously. But in some ways, I champion this guy and what his life looks like. But in other ways, he's lacking Mainly, he's lacking a love and affection for Jesus Christ. And the way that I know that is by looking at his prayer. When he, um, when he starts praying, notice how he starts his prayer. He starts to thank God, but all he really thanks God for is that he's such a godly man. He never asks God for anything. He doesn't come to God with a request. He doesn't say, God, I need your mercy and your forgiveness and your grace. He doesn't come to God and start to praise him for his divine attributes. He doesn't go to God and say, God, I just thank you that you have been so good to me, so patient to me, so kind to me, so gentle to me. You're my teacher. You've made me wise. You've been with me. You've provided for me. You've sustained me. That's not his tone or his posture at all. Instead, his posture is, God, thank you that I don't do bad things and I do do good things and I'm not like bad people. Amen. That's the prayer. That's the prayer. That's not an awesome prayer. The Pharisee is doing all the right stuff, but unfortunately, he's in a posture in a place where he's just blinded to the reality that he needs Jesus. It's a dangerous place to be when pride starts to seep into our hearts. Do you guys know how um, Tim Keller defines pride? He says, pride doesn't make you think highly of yourself, or pride doesn't make you think just lowly of yourself. Pride is making you think of yourself all the time. 
Pride doesn't turn your focus outward or upward onto God. Pride turns your focus inward onto yourself. And all of a sudden, you can't see Jesus. You can't see others. Only thing you can see is your religious scorecard in front of you. That's what you're living for. That's where this guy is at. Now, compare that to the tax collector. We've got to um, show the way that he prayed. Look with me at verse 13. This tax collector is standing off. Look at how he says this. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. City Light, let me ask you this. Have you ever been in that place where you've limped in, filled with shame, all you had to give to God wasn't a spiritual resume, but a request for mercy? Have you ever been in that place? I have. I've been in that place where there's no defending, no deflecting, no making excuses, but the only thing you can do is just humbly acknowledge your brokenness before a holy and righteous God and ask for mercy. Have you been in that place? Have you encountered God in that way? There's, there's, there's no pride here in this man. There's no ego. There's no, let me tell you why I'm awesome. There's just a man on his face. He's just beating his breast, just humbly before the Lord saying, God, I can't fix myself. I surrender. I need you. I need a savior bigger than myself. That's where he's at. This is what it looks like to become a Christian. It's a humbling thing. You don't come to God with strength and a resume. You don't come to God bartering and telling him why you're awesome. You only come to God saying, this is why I need you. This is what it looks like to become a Christian. You're tapping out and you're saying, I'm no longer gonna keep trying to prove myself. Instead, I'm gonna gonna trust in what Jesus Christ has accomplished for me. Don't we know how this story ends? In verse 14, the story ends with, This tax collector being justified, this humble, fresh off the street, sinful tax collector is the one that gets justified. He's the one that receives eternal life while this hyper-religious guy is going to miss out. And so this little parable starts to communicate something to us very early on is that there's something that God celebrates when we see ourselves rightly. God celebrates the fact that we pray in a desperate, dependent way. God celebrates that we come to him in a humble heart posture. To me, that's very comforting because I've come to God in that place and said, God, all I have to ask is for your mercy. I've got nothing to prove. I've got nothing to show you. I've got nothing to boast in. I just come with a request. I'm guilty. You're good. Would you give me your mercy? But these verses don't just comfort us. They also confront us because Jesus is warning us that you can be doing all of the right things and look really, really awesome, and yet you can be spiritually dead. There's a reality that you can go to church and you can sing the right songs and you can raise your hand at the right time of the worship songs and you can look like the really nice person and you can still be missing out on Jesus. That's the warning of this text. That if you make it about you, you can be doing all of the right things and people around you can think that you're really awesome but you have a high view of yourself and you're missing out on Christ. That's the warning of this text. So City Light, let me ask you, how do you see yourself? Can I ask you this morning to really take inventory? Are you looking at yourself and are you taking inventory and you're saying, I'm a good person because I don't do that and I do do this and I'm associated with these kind of people. Is that the way that you're trying to justify your goodness? Or do you see yourself as a sinner simply in need of mercy? What's your heart posture towards a holy and righteous God? God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And I wanna reassure all of you that you don't wanna come to God on that last day with a resume. You simply wanna come to God on that last day and ask for mercy. City Light, if there's anyone in this room that um, is at risk of having an inflated view of themselves, I kind of think it's us. 
Um, and here's why. So many of uh, you guys are incredibly prayerful. You're generous. You're awesome. You're hardworking. You're diligent. You guys are some of the most incredible people I know. I love you. I trust you. I like you. All of that is there. And see, if the danger for people like you and me is, that, is we can fall in love with our goodness and we can miss out on our actual desperate need for Christ. Now, when you couple that with what we've got to be a part of at City Light, we got to see God do some incredible things and we're planting churches and disciples of Jesus are being made and people are getting baptized and we're growing. There, there's a reality that we could start to fall in love with ourselves. There's a reality that we can start to get confident and prideful and start to think, man, no, we're the guys that have this thing figured out. We're the varsity team. We're the good people in the city. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. See yourself rightly. We never graduate from a humble posture of saying, I'm a sinful person in need of God's mercy. City Light, my prayer is that we would always be a church that doesn't make it about us, doesn't make it about our marriages and our parenting skills and our church planting and our faith and our generosity and our good deeds and our good works, but we'd always be a church that derives all of the glory and pushes all of the glory onward to Christ. We would remain a humble people at the foot of the Christ saying, listen, I am, but still a sinner in need of God's mercy. Amen? Would God help us to see ourselves rightly? Would we not get an inflated, bloated view of ourselves and try to take ourselves as bigger than we really are? Amen? Now, point one is, how do you see yourself? Second thing I want to show us is, how do you see others? How do you see others? That's the second question. As we know, we see this all the time. We connect this is how we interact with God vertically plays itself out horizontally in our relationships with other people. So if you're prideful and you're boasting in your relationship with God, guess what? You're probably going to be arrogant, egotistical in your relationships with others. And we start to see this play out in these verses. In verse 9, um, we start to see the problem that Jesus needs to confront. And he says the main problem is these folks are religious and self-righteous. They're trusting in themselves. And at the end of verse 9, he says that's affecting the way they treat other people. Mainly that they're treating people with contempt. Treating people with contempt. What that means is they're treating people like um, the Pharisees or the religious leaders or the church people are spiritually superior to everyone else. So everyone else is part of the JV team. These good church people are part of the varsity team. And we start to see this play out even in the way that the Pharisees pray. So look with me at how this Pharisee guy prays when he's at the temple. He says that he looks, um, he thanks God that he's not like other men. And then what does he do? He starts to name the people he's not like. And he looks over at the tax collector in the middle of his prayer. He says, I thank God that I'm not like that man over there, you know? In the middle of his prayer, that's his posture. Now, um, can you just imagine with me, City Light? You're at a city group, you're at somebody's house, you're, you're reading the Bible, it comes time where we gotta shut this thing down and the city group leader says, okay, it's time to go. We gotta shut this thing down in prayer. Let's all just bow our heads and pray together. Well, Lord, I thank you for tonight that we got to gather, we got to read your word, and I especially wanna thank you, Jesus, that, that I'm not like Susie, she's a gossiper, and uh, can't be trusted. I'm thankful that I'm not like Bill. Bill over there, that Bill. Yeah, that one, Lord. I'm thankful that I'm not like it. Can you imagine? That is not awesome. In Jesus' name, amen. I mean, that would not go well, right? That is not exactly the patient, kind, compassionate heart of Christ. There's some pride in that prayer. He's starting to size other people up. But, but this is where the Pharisee's at. There's the varsity team who looks like him, acts like him, um, believes like him. And then there's everyone else. There's the insiders and there's the outsiders. And see, like, this is what happens when we take our focus off Christ. You start comparing yourself to other people. 
You start comparing yourself with them and what they have and what you do and how you're better and how they're better. And you just, you're either feeling awesome about yourself because you're out doing them or you feel horrible about yourself because you realize you can't match up. It's a weird game to be played. But this is what happens when we take our eyes off of Christ. I remember um, when I came to know Christ at Wayne State, I was a new believer. Uh, I was a freshman, came to know Jesus, um, didn't even come to school with a Bible. Somebody told me about Christ on campus. I was hooked. And so um, the next thing they do is like, hey, you should get in a Bible study. And I was like, okay, if that's what Christians do, I'll start going to Bible study. So I start going to Bible study. And um, uh, I had like this New Testament they give out at freshman orientation. I don't know if you had that one. It's like this thin and it's, it's gonna fall apart if you throw it. I mean, it's just like this little cheap New Testament copy. And I didn't know where any of the books of the Bible are. You guys know that insecure moment. You're like, open up to Leviticus. And you're like, is that in this one? I don't see it, you know? So, um, and, uh, so it, it's all of that insecurity. And I get there with my little New Testament Bible and um, this Bible study was really serious. And so these brothers had like, do you remember in the early 2000s when you had to have like the thick Bible? You had to have the study Bible with all the application and the cross verses and the whole thing. And then you had to have the highlighters. You know those people. They got 13 highlighters. They're sitting right next to you right now. They got their Bible open. It's this big and have 14 highlighters. And they open their Bible and they've got like 14 years worth of notes. And you're like, I can't even find the book. And they've already highlighted it, you know? <laughs> And then that not only do they have all of that, but then they got like the, the, the pouch. You remember the pouch? You got to zip. You got to zip the whole thing. So it's like, open up your Bibles. Everybody's like, you know, you're like, uh, okay. You know, there's no, like, so JV, you feel so JV. And so I remember going to Bible study and I don't remember anything about Jesus. The only thing I remember I left there is like, crap, I need a new Bible. I, I got to get a Bible. I got to get a really big Bible because I look so bad right now. And so the next week I was like, okay, I'm going to go get a big Bible. I'm going to get a case. And I'm going to put a sticker with a fish on it, you know. And then I promise you, I opened it up. I just started highlighting about every six pages. Just, just I was like, I'm going I'm to show them what's up next week. They're going to know I know my Bible next week, you know. And so that's what you do. You see how weird that gets? You see how weird this gets? We just... All of a sudden, make it how big your Bible? I got a bigger Bible. I mean, that's all of a sudden what it's about is we start comparing. I mean, it's just so lame when we do this. It's never about how much you've marked up your Bible. It's always about how the Bible has marked up your heart. Isn't that true? So we're sitting here comparing ourselves. We're playing the wrong game. We're reaching for a righteousness and a goodness that's found in how big our Bibles are. It's super lame, but that's the game you play. But here's the problem when we go down that road. It's really hard to love people when you're comparing yourself to them. Isn't it hard to sympathize, to empathize, to walk with people in pain, to root them on? If part of your morality is tied to you outdoing them and being more awesome than them, you're not going to genuinely pray that God works in your life because you get part of your sense of goodness by being better than them. You don't actually want the family members in your family that are struggling with sin and going through some stuff to actually get walking with God because it's going to mess up your sense of being the best one in the family. You can't humbly walk with our brothers and sisters in Christ and love them if you're constantly comparing and, and criticizing and competing. You just can't do it, right? And so we just have to take inventory and say, God, would you help us to be humble people who rest in what you've done for us so that we're freed up to cheerlead, root on, walk with the people of God and not use the church's arena to size ourselves up against people. You're never designed to size yourself up and compare yourself to other Christians. You want to size yourself up to somebody, you got to compare yourself to the holiness and perfection of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't work out well. There's Jesus and everybody else. The church isn't filled with varsity and JV teams. 
right? It's not about the people, um, why we worship, who raise their hands and the people who don't. That's another fun one I could go off on a tangent with. I'm going to do it. Okay. <laughs> Isn't it true? Isn't it true that there's some of us, when we raise our hands, we're like, you know what, Jesus? I kind of wish the people next to me could worship you in an unashamed way. We're like, I wish they would go for it and just be bold. I wish they would just be more like me because I'm just out there. And there's other ones that are like introverted, you know, and you're kind of quiet with your worship and you're kind of right here and you're praying in your heart. God, I just wish that these people didn't have to make such a show of singing, you know? I mean, it's like, you know, oh, why do they got to be dancing up there? You know, God sees my heart, you know? And so we do this weird thing where even while we worship God, we're thinking about the other people, right? Instead of worshiping him. The whole point of this thing is that we'd be a family of God under one banner, Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness, his goodness, what he's done for us, not what we've done. We're not sizing ourselves up against the Bible study leader, trying to be more like somebody else. The only person we're trying to be more like is Jesus Christ. Amen? So how do you see yourself? And then how do you see others? What the gospel is going to do, the gospel is going to free us from trying to outdo everyone else because you, Christian, you already have the full love, affection, and approval of the Father. It's by faith in Christ, not by outdoing other people. And so you're finally free to not size people up and compare and compete. You're finally free to finally just rest that God can't love you anymore than he already does. So you love other people, the brothers and sisters in the family of God without comparing and competing because you know there's one level playing field. We're all but sinners who need mercy, loved and approved by the Father because of our faith in Christ. First thing we need to know is how do we view ourselves? The next thing we need to know is gospel, would you, Jesus, help us see others rightly? Help us see others rightly. Would that be the case at City Light? Also, um, the last thing I wanna show us is how do you see God? How do you see God? How do you view him? These two, the Pharisee and the tax collector have two radically different views of God. The Pharisee has a really high view of himself and a really low view of God. If he thinks he can impress and appease a holy, righteous, and perfect God by his moral righteousness, he's confused about God. He has a lower view of God, a higher view of himself. Thus, he thinks he can meet the requirements of God. And yet this tax collector, this sinner, has a really low view, honest view, humble view of himself, and he has a really big view of a holy and righteous God. He realizes there's no impressing this God by his works, by his morality, by his church attendance, by his self-improvement projects. And so what does he ask for? He asks for mercy. And what I want to see at the very end here is I want to look at these last couple of verses, and I want to show us how does God respond to this humble man's request for mercy? What do we learn about God, and how does that change and impact the way that we need to be looking at and viewing God? So let's read verse 13 and 14. It says, but the tax collector, standing, off, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. City Light, I have really good news for you. We worship a God that shows us mercy. Mercy is this idea here that um, we don't get the very things that we deserve. Mainly, um, this tax collector had sinned against God. He had sinned against other people and he was deserving of judgment and the full wrath of God. And yet, what God gives him is mercy. He doesn't get struck down. He doesn't get condemned. And so the question I came to when I read this verse is, how is it that God can show us mercy? How can he give us what we don't deserve? Well, because there was one man who received the punishment that he didn't deserve. And that man is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus took on what he didn't have coming so that we could have mercy. Because of Christ, we don't get the things that we should have coming to us. Jesus was sinless, and yet he took on the wrath for the sinful. Jesus was innocent, and yet he took on the full wrath for the guilty. And so City Light, what we see in this text is not a God who's angry with us, not a God that's out to get you. What we see in this text is a God that wants to show sinners his mercy. Do you understand that Jesus loves you enough that he took on the full wrath of God so that you could be spared from the punishment that you deserve? That the father would look at you and say, no, 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 there's a storm coming for you because of your rebellion. Instead of pouring that onto you, I'm gonna pour that out onto my son named Jesus Christ. Do you see how good, gracious, and amazing God is? That he would look at rebellious people like me and you have strayed from him and said, no, 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 I'm going to give them the very thing that they don't deserve and I'm not going to give them what they do deserve. I'm going to show them mercy. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I hope that you, I hope that you revel in that even because this week I was thinking, God, the things that I deserve are not awesome. I don't deserve a pat on the back. I deserve eternal condemnation because I've strayed from you and yet you have taken those things from me for and put them onto Christ. Thank you for not giving me what I deserve. That's awesome. That's amazing. Now, what's shocking is verse 14. The last thing I want to make an observation here is, as I've mentioned this before, but in verse 14, um, it says that the tax collector is the one that leaves the temple justified. It's not the, it's not the pastor. It's not the church planter. It's not the city group leader. It's not the religious one. It's not the one that memorized a whole bunch of scripture. It's the tax collector that leaves the temple justified. He's the one that receives eternal life. This is the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. God is showing mercy to the humble. He's forgiving sinners. He's moving towards the weak and the broken. So City Light, there's a couple things that I want to do with this. The first thing is this. If you're a person who's like me, who's blown it in the past, some of you guys, look, look, I get it. You're limping in here today and you know that you've lived in sin before. You know that you've lived in rebellion before. You know that there's some chapters to your story that are filled with compromise and evil and hurt. You're just like this tax collector and you're just like me. But this morning, I want you to look at this story and I want you to be filled with hope because we see in this story that Jesus will show you mercy if you humbly ask for it. Do you see that? This tax collector was the worst of the worst, and yet he's the one that walks away justified. Why? Because God grants him mercy. Secondarily, there's some of you in this room for years that have been confident in your goodness. You've thought that because you went to church for a long time, because you didn't do some things in high school that all the bad people did, because you did start doing some right things in college, because you've been the right person, because you've got a good marriage, because you've got good kids, because you work hard, because you run a good company, that all of a sudden that God is impressed with that stuff? That somehow you're a blessing to God, somehow God needs you, some God impressed with you, but man, that's, that's, nothing is further from the truth. God's not looking at you saying, yay, there's nothing about us that is impressive outside of our relationship with Christ. And so this morning, the invitation is to give up on chasing your morality and trying to be impressive to God and simply to humble yourself for some of you guys and just say, maybe for the first time, God, I give up on trying to play the cool church game and be impressive, try to be polished and put together, and I'm just going to receive mercy. Would you respond to his invitation for mercy? 
hey, listen, this is a moment where I want to invite some of you guys to really to become Christians. I want some of you guys in this room to actually do business with God. Some of us need to actually evaluate, have I ever actually responded to God's invitation for mercy? Have I just been doing the church thing? Have I just been living my own way? Listen, there's some of you in this room that have been rebellious. Some of you guys have been righteous. Some of you have been hanging out in the church. Some of you guys have been hanging out in the street. It doesn't matter. God's not worried about that. In that moment, God just simply wants to know, do you see him as a God of mercy? And will you respond to his invitation to show you mercy? Will you receive it? Will you bow your knee to King Jesus just like I've done? I promise you that God saved me. He's forgave me. He showed me mercy. He's come into my life and made me new. I promise you that Jesus Christ will do that if you will respond to his invitation today. Don't leave this place without doing business with God. I want to ask some of you guys, is God stirring your heart? To say, God, I, I want to know you, walk with you. I want to experience you. I'm coming to the end of myself and I give up. I'm tired. I want to know your mercies in a fresh new way. I don't want to just learn about the Bible. I want to know you, Jesus. Is God stirring your heart in that way? Today, if he is. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion in just a minute. If you're helping with communion, would you get up, start to go to the back, prepare communion? Uh, we're going to start to worship in just a minute, and, um, and then I'm going to pray here in just a minute. And here's what I want. If God has been stirring your heart today and say, God, I'm a, I'm, I'm a guy that wants to experience your mercies in a fresh way, I want to become a Christian. I want to bow my knee to King Jesus. I want to pray, and I want to ask you to bow your head and in just a moment and pray with me. Everything that I'm going to say isn't magical, but what we see in this text is that God is faithful to hear the humble cries of the sinful, right? There's nothing amazing and magical about this tax collector's prayer, but God heard it, blessed it, and justified this man by his faith in Christ. So we're going to pray here in just a minute. And here's what I want to say. In just a few weeks at City Light, we're going to celebrate our third, bapt- our third uh, birthday as a church And if you pray to receive Christ today, or maybe you've prayed to receive Christ before, um, you're walking with Jesus, um, you've maybe made that decision, even now, God's working in your heart, you made that decision today, I want to ask you to do something in a couple weeks with us. Would you come forward in three weeks and get baptized? Would you get baptized at City Light? Would you let our church celebrate what God has done privately in your life, publicly, I can promise you there's nothing that our church is gonna get more excited about than when you get up here and you get baptized and said, here's where I was at, here's what I was living for, but I've experienced the mercies of God. I've become a child of God. I've bowed my knee to King Jesus. That's awesome. I promise you our church family is gonna be so excited. I promise you that heaven will rejoice when you bow your knee to King Jesus. So will some of you bow your knee to King Jesus today? And in three weeks, I pray that this place would be filled with some folks that would say, yes, I became a Christian. Here's when I came to know him. I prayed, I'm in, I wanna trust Jesus. And I want to tell the whole church family that I'm walking with Christ now. So let me pray right now. So Lord, I just believe that, um, that Lord, you are using this text to stir up our affections for you. And so um, for the folks in this room who, um, man, God, maybe have been stirred to um, bow their knee to you, I want to pray, Jesus, that um, even right now, uh, you'd be working, your Holy Spirit would be calling, your Holy Spirit would be moving, your Holy Spirit would be speaking. And so if that's you in this room, would you just pray these words in your heart to yourself? So Lord, um, I'm a sinner, I've rebelled, I've run from you, but Jesus, I want to experience you as my Savior and Lord. I welcome you as the leader of my life and I place my faith wholly in you. God, I don't place my faith in my goodness, my morality, but God, I place my faith in Jesus Christ, what you've done for me, God. In Jesus' name I pray. And for those in this room that are the people of God, 
Um, God, we pray and we simply say, Thank you for the new brothers and sisters in Christ that we may have in this room even now. We thank you for the the way that you've worked in this church to call people from death to life. And um, God, we look at this text and we say thank you for the mercies that you've shown us. Thank you, God, for not giving us what we deserve, but instead pouring your wrath out onto Christ. God, we look at all that we've done and all that we deserve from you. And um, God, we thank thank you that it's not coming our way. We thank you that Christ loved us enough to suffer and take on the punishment of the cross so that we could experience your goodness and your mercy. Lord, we love you, and uh, we take communion with great joy today. In Jesus' name, amen.